So um, um, we're going to get started with a brief prayer, and then I'm going to play a song that I like that I think um, really captures the essence of one of the concepts that we're really trying to drive home in the Bridging the Gap training. Um, if you haven't figured it out, along with coffee and danishes, the handouts for today are on the table over here as well as name tags. And for my sake, I'd love for you to wear name tags and for the people at, at your table. So let's have a brief prayer, and then I'm going to play a song that talks about um, asking, seeking, and knocking. And what you're going to find is that all of you that are here this morning that are really asking for more wisdom, for more knowledge, for more grace and power in your life to both be blessed and be a blessing, um, God will show up for you. When you meet with someone, the more powerfully they are reaching out for help from you, from God, the more likely it is that he will show up in a powerful way. And so uh, let's, uh, let's begin by asking, seeking, and knocking on heaven's door for a great blessing for our time today, and then we'll listen to the words of the song. If you want, while the song's playing, if you need to get something else to drink or get your handouts or a name tag, feel free to do that while the song's playing. God, we thank you for today. We thank you that you are accessible to us, that we can turn to you in any moment, and that you, the God of everything will attend to our cry when we call out with a sincere heart. Thank you that you tell us when we seek you with our whole heart, we will, you will be found by us. Thank you that you draw near to the brokenhearted, those who are crushed in spirit. Thank you that you meet us at our point of need. We thank you that you do for us what we are powerless to do for ourselves. And God, create in us a heart to ask, a heart to seek, and a heart to knock every day to ask and keep on asking, to seek and keep on seeking, to knock and keep on knocking, that we might find you, find your graciousness, find your peace, and find your power that we might be blessed and be a blessing. Lord, we pray that you give us a hungry heart this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Coming my heart with this pain. 
Seek and knock real loud. I love that. Well, welcome to the third Saturday of Bridging the Gap. How many of you have been here every time so far? Woo! I love that. Love it, love it, love it. Y'all are awesome. Um, for those of you who, I know a few of you have missed one or two of the ones we've had already. So if this is your first time, welcome to Bridging the Gap. Um, each time I'll just take a few minutes at the beginning just to kind of recap where we've been. Um, the gist of, of the message is that all of our relationships prepare us for God. That God uses our human relationships to teach us about the nature of love. And to the extent that our human relationships are satisfying and good, they cause in us a, a further desire for more love, for more connection, for more of God's life in us. But ironically, to the extent that our human relationships fail us, that's where we most find ourselves in need of God's grace, where we most find ourselves crying for something beyond what the planet has to offer and engaging with God himself. We're presenting a relational model of development, and we're proposing that from the beginning of history until now, God's great desire is to grow us up into his likeness, that the culmination of all things that will, will be that the bride of Christ, pure, without spot and blemish, would be presented as a fit partner for Jesus Christ. And to that end, we're on a process of growing up. We're in a process of development. And so we, we're taking a look at the counseling um, connection, the relationship that is forged in the counseling room, and using that sort of to uh, begin to unpack a relational model that is anchored in human development and in the Beatitudes. Now, have any of you taken the time to memorize the Beatitudes? I haven't suggested it to you, but has anybody taken the time to memorize them? Well, I tell you what, I want to challenge all of you to, to take the time between now and the next time we meet to memorize the Beatitudes. There's eight, eight scriptures, um, eight uh, verses of scripture, and um, each of them start with the words, blessed are. And it's my strong conviction that it is no mistake that they are the first words that we find in the Gospels that Jesus utters as part of his public ministry. I believe it's no mistake that they are, um, they sort of are the foundational teachings of Jesus' ministry. And as I proposed on that first day, that they form sort of a cornerstone for Jesus' teaching and that everything that follows can be understood best in the light of those passages. And what, what we're proposing is that while they're, fundamental application is in our relationship with God. In other words, the Beatitudes define how we relate to God and to other people, that they can be applied in every human relationship. And uh, we've looked, at the first day we looked at how they apply to the counseling relationship and a little bit to parenting. Last, the last Saturday we met, 
we applied them more, more uh, explicitly to parenting. Today, we're going to apply them to marriage because we're going we're gonna to look at how God uses marriage to grow us up, to let us renegotiate the tasks of development that allow us to engage life effectively, to engage relationships in a way that is full of truth and grace. So um, just as a recap, though, let's look back. If you want to look to the handout that says the goal of counseling, we said the goal of counseling is change. That, um, again, God's desire is to transform us. Change is what the life of, of Christ is all about. If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creature. The old is gone, the new is come. And, and stepping into that new identity is what being born again um, is all about. It's all about shifting our focus from our human relationships to our relationship with God. And so we said that in counseling, if we're going to have change, there are four basic things that need to happen. The first C that needs to happen is connection. We need to forge a connection with the person we're meeting with. And we said that that bond that's, that's forged is based on two things. It's based on the expression of need from the person who's coming to you. We said that that expression of need is reflective of the first beatitude, which is blessed are the poor in spirit. And it's, the bond is furthered by your expressions of mercy or acceptance or, or uh, affirmation for that person. And so that reflects on the fifth beatitude, blessed are the merciful. And we said this after the connection, then we go toward confession. And a strong and healthy bond allows a sense of safety so that whatever negative feelings are there can, can come forward. Just like a, a, a child going from infancy to toddlerhood, there's a lot of negativity that arises in that safe environment. Um, a lot of tantruming, a lot of uh, saying no, a lot of boundaries. And even in the counseling relationship, if all goes well, the person that you're meeting with will feel comfortable enough to bring forward their tears, their frustrations, um, their hurts, their anger, their judgments, and will speak them into that relationship where you having that attitude, and of course that corresponds with blessed are those who mourn, um, you having a, a sturdy and steady presence with them can be like a wailing wall and be still while they bring all that out. You can express sort of what Jesus intends by purity of heart in that environment. The third thing we said was course correction. Once you get at the pain, once you get at the problem, once you've defined what the issues are, then you have an opportunity, like a parent parenting a, a child, to provide instruction, to provide a path that they can walk. Um, you can in, encourage them into a way of meekness where they are teachable and where you become a peacemaker for that person by helping them to connect the dots between things that, they, that happened in the past and what they're dealing with in the present. You help to bring things that, that are unconscious into consciousness. You bridge the gap between um, what they were taught growing up and what the truth of the scripture is. And that's a very reward, rewarding stage of the counseling process. And then finally, our, the, the fourth uh, sort of uh, paradigm, the fourth mechanism that we want to see in the counseling room is conviction. And that's, that's simply a word for helping the person to internalize the values that, that, you're, that they've learned, to um, take responsibility for the change, to be willing to hunger and thirst for righteousness, as the fourth beatitude says, in, instead of just hungering and thirsting for relief. Because many of us come into counseling just to get relief. But if God has his way, 
we leave with a fresh conviction that even if it means more pain or, or suffering or loss, we're going to do the right thing because that's what we've grown to love. That's what we've grown to value is having a sense of integrity and internal peace. Um, and then, the, of course, the, the final beatitude says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. We talk about how sometimes it's hard to, to let go and not be needed anymore, kind of like a parent, you know, launching children, um, being, being willing to, to tell yourself they don't need me anymore and to even give that message to the person you're meeting with so that they don't become dependent on you, but rather become dependent on the Holy Spirit within as counsel and comfort. So um, I know that's just a real quick overview, and if you missed the times before, that may not be enough to really help you anchor into it. Hopefully, if you've been here, it's kind of you're kind of going like, yeah, I kind of remember that. Is, are you kind of remembering that, I hope? <laughs> um, because I, I think the value of this training, if it does anything for you, I believe it can give you a way of thinking about um, the, the people that you know and where they may be struggling in their life of faith, in their emotional development, um, where they may be struggling in terms of, of being able to bond or release, uh, being willing to yield to authority, or whether they're, they're stuck uh, in, in that third stage of people-pleasing and need really to find a way to take a stand for their life. So um, with that as a kind of a recap of where we've been, what I'd like to do this morning is talk about how marriage is, is another uh, relationship where these principles can be, uh, can be seen very well. Before we do that, though, um, I always like to start with a, um, a worship song. And I, don't, I didn't ask anybody to come up and, and um, uh, lead with a guitar, so we're just going to have to do it a cappella. Anybody, anybody besides me grow up in the Church of Christ? Yeah, hey, we've got a few of you. All right. Um, so for, for those of you who grew up in the Church of Christ, it won't be, seem too strange. But for the rest of you, if you'll stand up. Mm. And we're just going to sing an old chorus um, that says, I love you, Lord. Um, it says, I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you. Oh, my soul rejoice. Take joy, my King, in what you hear. Let it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. Okay? I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you, oh, my soul rejoice, take joy, my King, in what you hear, let it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. Amen. You can be seated. Mm. Anybody out there love the Lord? <laughs> God is good. Oh, just as a um, sort of an update, we are in our new house, sort of. <laughs> we are physically there, but um, it's still quite a place of chaos. <laughs> uh, we, we did get, uh, we had a consignment shop on the freeway. We, we found a couch and a chair that we did, we broke down and bought. So, so yeah, 
Yes. Um, the question is, if we're putting the, the podcast on the internet, and the answer is not yet. Um, um, hopefully, when I get just a little bit more order in my life, <laughs> I will get those on the internet. You can purchase them now, down at, at Sycamore's at the bookstore, but it's kind of pricey, and it'll be, you know, if you, if you, uh, if you, if somebody wants to buy one and, you know, make copies of it and pass it out, you can do that. But we, they will be on the internet just as soon as I get my act together, which could be a little bit more time. <laughs> I don't know if it'll happen before next session or not, but eventually they will be there. If somebody is, um, is good at, at transferring um, CDs to podcasts and wants to, to offer to do that, I, I don't mind doing it. It's just, it's a time-consuming process. So um, please bear, bear with me, be patient. But, um, but moving, change is difficult, and a lot of times um, we resist it. And so God has to conspire to sometimes to get us to change. And one of the ways he does that is to get us into a marriage. Ever notice that? <laughs> it's kind of, a, you know, it's kind of sneaky of God, right? You know, because you meet this person and you think, this person loves me just the way I am. This person gets me. This person accepts me and loves me totally. This is the greatest thing ever. I don't have to change to be everything this person wants me to be. And then you wake up. It's like, oh, my word. I thought I wasn't going to have to change. I thought this was nirvana. I thought this was heaven on earth. And instead, I wake up one day and it's like, what happened? Um, because that, that vision of what marriage can be, that one flesh vision that we have, when we first meet someone, when we first lock eyes with them, when we first feel those butterflies or the pitter-pat of love, um, we, ha- we get just a sense of what intimacy and oneness is all about. And in the beginning, it's like falling off a log, right? It's like, it's like you're, you have this kind of like mind meld with this person that you're in love with, and you can almost finish each other's sentences. You, like, say all the right things and do all the right things. It's just remarkable how brilliant I am when I'm in love and how ignorant and pig-headed I am when I fall out of love, right? It's just amazing. Well, anyway, we're going to look at the four tasks of marriage and how marriage is really is God's conspiracy to change us, Right? It's one of his, I mean, it's not the only way he conspires to change us, but it's one way. And the reason it's such a powerful way is because it's based on a covenant. It, um, beginning in, in Genesis chapter 2, and I apologize for the little uh, lines up there, hopefully that won't bother you too much. But um, in Genesis 2.24, Scripture says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they too will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Actually, that last part comes from um, Jesus' words in, in Matthew. But the first part is from Genesis 2.24. And, um, and, and it, it reflects God's desire for unity. It's God's desire for oneness. And as we've pr- proposed before, is that, that the mystery of the ages is that God intends to bring everything together in Christ. And a marriage is sort of a little microcosm of that grand scheme of God to bring everything to oneness. 
And when a man and a woman unite together and become one flesh, it is a glory to God. It reflects his desire for unity. However, we struggle. We sometimes, we don't really always, oops, that slide was supposed to, oh, I think I put the wrong, oops. I have the wrong PowerPoint up here. This one has a bunch of stuff that we don't need. So if you'll bear with me for just a moment, I'll get the one that I want. Sorry. What is it? We can all... Class on marriage, yes. Okay, here we go. Okay, so... um, so as we said that, you know, God's design is for us to, um, to become one. One way to view the process is through human development. And we've looked at this before, but just as a recap, we're proposing four stages. We're proposing the first stage is bonding, or in the context of marriage, we might call it embracing, where we embrace our partner as God's gift. We embrace one another in our weaknesses and in our strengths. We embrace um, our partner as God's provision for our needs. Um, but as, as wonderful it is to bond, we also need to separate. We also need to have a, um, a, an ability to release. Why don't we, as we go through this, well, let me just go ahead and do the, the four tasks. The third one is yielding, and the fourth is pursuit. And I want to go through now and just kind of unpack these in the context of marriage. Once again, we're, we're kind of... Re, we're, referring back each time we go through this process to Jesus' words in the Beatitudes and how they relate to our path of development. So if you, if you want to take the uh, page that says the four tasks of marriage and put next to it the one that says, um, that has embracing, releasing, yielding, pursuit with the Beatitudes, you might just want to put them next to each other so that as we go through them you can refer back and forth to the two. So the first task of marriage is embracing. And this is the the task that is so easy um, in the beginning. It's so easy for us to feel that sense of connection. I'm going to skip over the Beatitudes here because they're on on your page. But um, in, in, whoops. In marriage, God uses our need for connection. He uses our need for security, our need for love, our need for understanding to get us into a frame of mind where we are willing to make a covenant to partner with someone for life. Um, the needs that we have for, uh, for love and for connection are so powerful that many of us will do whatever it takes to pursue a relationship with someone that we can partner with in love. And some of you have, have been in relationships where you've had to hold on um, to your, your love for a person, even over long stretches of time. Uh, my wife and I met when we were 16, and it wasn't until we were tw- I was 27 and she was 26 that we actually got married. But the first time she met me, she told God, that's who I want to marry. Um, and there was a spark there for, from the beginning for me too, but I'm just a slow learner. And... Um, so it was, it was almost 11 years after we met that we actually got married. But that desire for connection can be so powerful that we will overcome all kinds of odds to pursue that relationship. 
And that when we stand before God and others in, in a, a wedding ceremony, we make vows that, that call us to, uh, to be in a relationship in a way that demonstrates faithfulness, loyalty, tenderness, compassion, forgiveness. And the wedding vows are very important for us because they, they uh, set a course for us, but they also invite God to enter into the relationship and give us the power to do what otherwise would be impossible. That's ultimately what a vow is. It's asking God to enter, engage with us in an endeavor that we cannot do without his help. But it also, in exchange for God's assistance, calls us to put everything on the line. If we want God to give us all that he has for, for us in our, our lives, we also must be willing to surrender what we have to offer. And vows um, do that. And they make us feel so safe. They make us feel so loved and comfortable. Um, and in the beginning, that warmth of the covenant is really remarkable. Um, a covenant is not like a contract. In a covenant, we make a, we make a uh, decision that we are going to be in the relationship no matter what. And that whatever happens, we're going to use all of our energy to foster and to maintain that bond. It doesn't mean that we're always going to be nice, however. Um, when God covenanted with the Israelites as his people, um, his covenant was not, I'm going to be nice to you guys no matter what, was it? No, that wasn't what he said at all. He said, you are my people, I will be your God. And if you pursue me, if you follow after my ways, I will bless you beyond imagining. But if you choose to turn away from me, if you move away from me, in this covenant relationship, I'm going to make your life pretty much hell. I'm going to make it bad because I'm going to do whatever I can to get you to turn around and come back toward me. And that's the heart that he wants us to have in the relationship of marriage. He wants us to have a heart to do whatever it takes to, to restore, to uh, foster, and to sustain that, uh, that marriage connection. And so it's not all about being nice, it's about being loving. And sometimes being loving doesn't always look that nice. Ever notice that with God? Um, he's not always, he doesn't always show up in a nice way, but he always shows up in a loving way. So the covenant of marriage is very comforting in the beginning, but over time, things begin to heat up, and we experience marriage as a crucible. Anybody know what a crucible is? It's a, it's a vessel usually made of porcelain or some material that can be heated to very high temperatures. And in the crucible, you can put substances for purification. That in, in the, the heat of the crucible, volatile substances are driven off and the substance can be brought to purity. You can also use a crucible to blend two things together. And marriage is God's perfect crucible because it causes us if we take our vows seriously, to have to hold on even when it would be easiest to bail. Because in the, in the crucible of marriage, all of our junk gets exposed. All of our worst things come to light. The person who pushes all our buttons and makes us light up like a Christmas tree when we're first in the romance phase of the relationship eventually pushes all our buttons and, and makes the very worst of us show up. Ever notice that? Like, I don't like who I am with I'm, when I'm with you, you know? You just, like, get to be somebody you don't even like yourself because you instinctively 
as part of God's conspiracy, connect with someone who is going to make, make all your worst qualities show up. It's, it's wonderful and terrible. Um, it's very aggravating, but it seems to be God's way. So the crucible of marriage reveals our impurities. This is inevitable. The good news is that by God's grace and our willingness to repent, these impurities can be burned away and our character refined. That word is not up there, but our character transformed or refined. We can, get, we can be transformed through the crucible of marriage. Well, let's look at what happens as we're going through this transformation process. The first task, we said, is bonding or embracing. And, and we think about a mother with, a, with an infant. And the first task of a healthy relationship is bonding. We saw that last week or a few weeks ago when we did the parenting talk. And um, indeed, in a, in a marriage, the foundational task is bonding. To be one flesh, we must be connected. And it's a connection that is not just forged at the beginning and then left alone. No, every day we must reach out to each other physically, emotionally, verbally, um, in all kinds of different ways to forge a deep connection. The joy of marriage is the joy of connection. And so the, there are two Beatitudes that, that reflect this bonding thing, just like we've said before. The first one is number one, which is blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of marriage. If you want to say it in a, a different terms, express your needs in marriage and find the joy of belonging. Or on that first page it says, ask for more. Just like in a relationship with God, God loves a person who is always hungry for more of him. God wants us to always be looking for that next horizon, to be looking for more intimacy, more love, more power from him. And so in a relationship of marriage, if it's healthy, we want to ask for more. It's never enough to just sit back and say, okay, we've arrived. A healthy marriage is always um, growing, is always asking for more. And th the sad thing is that a lot of us have a tough time expressing our needs. A lot of us have a tough time asking for what we want. And especially, I think, women tend to struggle with asking for what they want because women are so nurturing and they're so good at taking care of babies who have no words that they feel like if you really love someone, you know their needs without them having to say them, right? Or at least not more than once. You know, he knows what I want. Why doesn't he give it to me? You know? Um, and my wife, actually, she thought that in an ideal world, you could just read each other's mind. You wouldn't have to use words at all. Like she had, her idea was Adam and Eve didn't even have to talk to each other. They could just like mind meld and, you know, oh, you want a pair? Here, you know. Um, but, but words are important. Even in a relationship with God, God knows what we need, but he tells us to ask, right? Because, because asking makes me responsible for my need and not someone else. As much as God loves us, he doesn't want to take responsibility for our needs. Do you know that? He wants you to take responsibility for your needs, even your need for bread. You know, it's like, well, God made us to need food, right? Why should we have to ask? Well, because asking puts us at his mercy. Asking puts us in that place of, of uh, gratitude, that place of need. And if you think about how a man approaches a woman often when he first asks for a hand in marriage, it's on bended knee. In that the, the word for poverty the, or poor in spirit that's in that first beatitude 
is a word that's, that reflects a crouching or a kneeling posture that a beggar would take. Isn't that cool? That when we approach God and when we approach our mate with our needs, we approach them on bended knee. Because no matter how entitled you may think you are to your partner's love or security or money or whatever, the truth is a healthy marriage uh, never gets past that feeling of being at one another's mercy, that feeling of being a beggar, uh, that feeling of being like a baby reaching out for the love of a mother. Now, it's uncomfortable because if you make yourself, put yourself at someone's mercy and they harden their heart toward you, that's tough. You feel your pain. But it's God's way. Even in our relationship with him, there are times when we put ourselves at his mercy and he doesn't come through in the way that we wish he would or feel he should. And we feel grief. But it's God's way that we stay close to our need, that we ask for more. On the, on the flip side of the bonding coin is mercy. Blessed are the merciful. And if God has his way, we'll open the door toward our partner. Open the door of our resources, our tenderness, our affection, our forgiveness. Um, we keep a soft heart toward our mate. Is this easy? No, it's not. Because especially uh, since God made men and women to have different needs, it's very easy to get in a stalemate. He's not getting his need met, so he withholds from giving what his wife needs. She's not getting her emotional needs met, so she withholds what her husband needs. And it's easy to get in a real um, stuck position where neither will, will reach out in tenderness and love, where neither will ask for more or open the door, and they get really stuck um, in, and withdraw from one another. talked about the cry of an infant and, and how the cry is reflective of that expression of need. Um, in marriage, sometimes um, we think we can be just like a baby and, and you know, wail loud and long enough that somebody will come. Um, but the truth is we have words. We can learn to express our needs. And as difficult as it is, we can reach out to one another. Gazing is something that you see a lot in the romance phase of the relationship and you see a lot with, with children too. I tell you what, in the interest of time, I think I'm going to skip the PowerPoint. Um, yeah, I think that I think it'll be. I think we'll we'll get through the material better if we don't use the PowerPoint. I kind of hate it because it has some cool pictures, but but I think we'll because Carrie Butler is going to be coming a little after ten to talk about emotional. Focus therapy, I think we probably should press on. Let's do that. Um, if, the, um, if the bond of marriage is, is good, um, then we can, um, we can feel a sense of understanding. We can feel a sense of sec security. We can feel a sense that that person is truly tracking with us. Um, if you look at the, uh, the handout, the speaker-listener technique, this is something that I often give people to help forge that sense of connection, that forge that sense of bonding. And it's a tool that really helps you to, um, to feel a sense of, of connection with another person. The gist of it is that um, when you use this tool, you use a specific object to uh, designate who has the floor. It could be a cell phone, it could be a marker. Um, I don't recommend a fork or a knife. Um, <laughs> 
Um, you could use a remote control, something that, that the person who's the speaker um, will hold on to to designate that they have the floor. And when they use it, uh, when, when they use this technique, then the speaker can um, choose what the topic is going to be. It should be a topic that both people have some feelings about, but not, ne not necessarily that you're in conflict about. Um, it could be um, uh, talking about where you're going to go on your vacation. It could be talking about uh, what color are you going to paint the walls. It could be talking about some financial decision. But it's a, it's a way of allowing you, like the, the uh, Take It to the Cross tool last time, to have a structure to support you in understanding one another. And so the speaker will, will share just a couple of sentences and pause and then let the listener um, respond and reflect back what they're hearing. And if we have time later on in the morning, I'll give you a chance to try this out with somebody else and we'll give you a specific topic to talk about just so you get a chance to try this out. This is a tool that's very simple but very difficult for lots of couples. It is amazingly difficult to hold yourself still and steady and really listen to what someone is saying when you also have strong feelings about what, uh, what the topic is. It's very difficult to rein in your own desire to share your own feelings and just reflect back what you're hearing. Um, let's, say, uh, let's say the topic is having a budget. And it's something maybe you've talked about in your marriage or in a relationship. And um, so you're going to bring up that topic to use the speaker-listener technique. If you're the speaker, you're going to say something like, okay, um, the topic is a budget, and I feel kind of a love-hate relationship with a budget. And I feel a little bit nervous even us talking about it. So then you pause, and your, your partner says, okay, so we're talking about a budget, and you love the idea and hate it, and you're nervous. And, and the speaker says, Yes. Now, the speaker does not hand the floor or the object to the listener. They hold on to it. The listener just has to remember their only job is to reflect back what they've heard. So then the speaker says, yes, um, I, I feel really convicted. I've been reading Financial Peace by Dave Ramsey, and I feel really convicted that we should have a budget. So the listener says, so you're reading Dave Ramsey, and you, you really feel convicted we should have a budget. And the speaker says, yeah, I do. And I'm afraid that it's going to create strife between us, and that makes me scared. You know? And so, again, the, the listener gets to say. Once the speaker has shared their thoughts and feelings, then the listener gets a chance to have the floor. Speaker passes it over, and then the listener gets to, to share their thoughts and feelings. Again, bite-sized morsels. It's kind of like placing an order at Wendy's or you know, some drive-thru. You, you give an item... You know, I want the junior bacon cheeseburger. Maybe I'll give two items and um, spicy chicken nuggets. I always order off the value menu, I'm sorry. Um, and, um, and so the person that's taking the order says, okay, that's a junior bacon cheeseburger and spicy nuggets. Yes, and my wife wants a baked potato, cut the chives. Okay, so you just give a little bit and wait for the response to make sure that the person you're speaking to has got it right. Because what you don't want is to get your food and realize that they totally misunderstood and put chives on your potato. How bad would that be? <laughs> okay. So, um, so anyway, this speaker-listener technique is something that I would encourage all of you to try. Um, it will help you as a counselor 
to get better at reflecting back what you're hearing. It's a skill that every person in this room can learn. You can get really good at it. And you will be amazed at how if, if all you do the first session with someone is reflect back what you're hearing and you do it well, you will be amazed at how the person will say, thank you so much. I feel so much better. You're like, how cool is that? I didn't even have to make the junior bacon cheeseburger. Um, you know, it's, it's an amazing thing that feeling understood, feeling heard is very calming and centering. Okay, I said I wasn't going to use the PowerPoint, but I think I'm going to. Um, there's a verse in Ecclesiastes that talks about two being better than one. It says two are better than one. It says if two lie down together, they'll keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? Bonding is what gives us that sense of connection. And romantic love is based on our need for each other. It's God's desire that we stay close to our need for one another to foster that bond or marriage. And we said that blessed are the poor in spirit is the, the Beatitudes version of happy are those who stay close to their need for God, for their mate, and for others. We must learn to take responsibility for getting our needs met. With God as our ultimate source, we can risk letting others be our provision. That means that God is our safety net. And ultimately, it is not my partner's job to meet my need or my partner's job to make me happy. God is the keeper of my soul. And even if I'm in a relationship that is like a desert wasteland, we have confidence that God sees and he knows and that when my, when my partner fails me, God is my safety net. And so I can risk being vulnerable. I can risk asking and keeping on asking because God is my source. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the merciful. The other side of the bonding coin is mercy. And mercy is reflected in acceptance, in tenderness, in compassion, in generosity, and in forgiveness. And if we want to have that, that sweet bond that you see with a mother and a child, we, we cultivate poverty of spirit and mercy in our marriage. A uh, good book that I use as a resource for a lot of couples um, is this book, The Five Love Languages <coughs> by Gary Chapman. <coughs> Excuse me, how many of you read it? A lot of you. It's a great read. It's a real simple concept, very quick to read, but very powerful. Because so, so many couples are doing too literally what Jesus says when he says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. They're too literally loving their partner the way they want to be loved. And for my wife and I, it was very tragic after a number of years of marriage to look back and realize that I was doing for her what I wanted her to do for me. She was doing for me what she wanted me to do for her. And we were missing each other. Just as a little for instance, when I get under stress, I need order. And so when I saw that my wife was stressed, I would go clean the kitchen or, you know, take out the trash or do something to create order, to, to serve her. Um, when she's under stress, she needs connection. She needs to be held and talked to. So she would go back, retreat back in the room, wishing that I would, you know, connect with her. Or she would, when I, she saw me being stressed, she would come and try to put her arms around me. But when I'm stressed, I don't like to be touched. You know, it's like weird stuff. But we, we saw the five love languages, we realized that we were different. That God's design is to make us learn to love someone who is, who is distinctly different than we are. And that doesn't prove to be always easy. It's not natural for me to hug when I'm under stress. But it's getting 
easier because I'm married to someone who needs that. It's not natural for her to clean the kitchen when she's under stress, but she's getting better at it because she knows it makes me feel better. So there are five love languages. Briefly, um, the first one uh, listed here is words of appreciation. Some people feel love most when they're hearing words of love. I love you. You're so special. You're so good at, at what you do. Um, I love how you handle the kids. Whatever words reflect appreciation and love. Second one is quality time. This is a big one for my wife. Hanging out together, doing things together makes her feel loved. A third one is acts of service, which is big for me. Early on in our marriage, I told my wife, you know, I really feel loved when there's orange juice made up in the fridge. She's like, oh, so I don't love you if there's not orange juice in the fridge? Like, oh, no, not that. But, but really, when there are acts of service being done for me, I feel loved. I feel loved. Um, the third, fourth one is gifts. Some people really feel loved most when they get a card, um, uh, a gift, what, what, even if it's a, if it's a, a simple, inexpensive gift, something that demonstrates that this person gets me. They know what I like. They've taken time to find something that demonstrates their love in a tangible way. And the fifth one is physical touch. This could be sexual or uh, affectionate, but some people do not feel fully loved unless there's a physical connection. Holding hands, kissing, um, sexual intimacy, for some people are what lights up their, their, their world. It makes the, their socks roll up and down. And if you don't, uh, if you don't use this with couples, I think you're, you're missing out on something that's a very easy way to help them get better at bonding. Because when needs are not met in a marriage, uh, there's a tendency to withdraw. Um, we talked about how a baby um, cries out for a connection. But if a baby cries and cries and cries, eventually the tendency is to withdraw, to stop crying, to stop reaching out. And if we're not careful in our marriage, we will tend to withdraw when we don't feel a, a warm response. Mercy is revealed in our ability to nurture, accept, and forgive one another. Um, and, but how are we choose to respond to our spouse? God takes it personally. Jesus says, whatever you do to one of the least of these, you've done to me. And it's hard probably most difficult in marriage to remember that your partner may be, in this moment, the least of these. <laughs> your partner may be the one that Jesus is most interested in you serving, even though he most certainly does not deserve it in this moment. She certainly does not seem worthy of my affection in this moment. But Jesus is always worthy of our affection. He's always worthy of our love. Um, and how we choose to respond to our spouse God takes it personally. Again, this doesn't always mean being nice. There are times when boundaries need to be established. There are times when separation may uh, be a necessity. But it always needs to be from a heart of love, uh, a soft heart and not from a hard heart. I think what we're going to do now is um, kind of uh, wrap up um, this segment um, in just a few minutes, Carrie Butler, Dr. Butler will be coming, and she's going to be talking about emotionally focused therapy. And she's going to be talking about how um, this new type of therapy, it's, it's relatively new over the last uh, couple of decades, um, really captures the essence of this uh, bonding aspect of marriage. That, um, that what happens for so many couples is they lose that emotional connection. <clears throat> and emotionally focused therapy is all about helping couples reclaim their emotional connection. 
Um, one of the things that, that you'll notice is that, that with couples who um, have, uh, have been married for a long time, they tend to do one of two things. They tend to either become more and more separate emotionally, um, and those marriages may be very calm and placid, but there's not a lot of spark. There's not a lot of uh, joy or freedom in the relationship. Or they, they maintain a very powerful emotional bond, but they have a very rocky up and down. They have blow-ups. They have knock-down drag-outs. You know, they, they bicker, fight. They, you know, they may have wild, passionate sex, but then they stonewall each other for days. You know, they, they, they're so emotionally connected that they react to one another and they're, they're so much at the focus of each other's relationship that they can't, they can't keep things calm. Um, for these couples, um, there's a very strong need for them to have an emotional gate or emotional separation. And after, uh, after we hear from Carrie, we'll talk about how important it is for a couple not just to have an emotional passageway where they can, where they can have a free flow of emotion, but also to have an emotional gate where when one is dealing with negative feelings, the other one can stay calm. Um, in emotionally focused therapy, there are two things that are being taught. One is to open up your heart to your partner, to open up this channel of emotion so that you begin to uh, share your hurts, your frustrations, um, your tender feelings, your fears. But, the, but also, as your, uh, as your partner is, is opening up that channel, to be able to have a gate so that you're not flooded by those negative emotions. Healthy, healthy couples are able to share the full range of negative feelings, um, but they're able to do so um, without escalating, without re reacting off one another. They take turns being able to express those negative feelings. And when we talk about the second task of marriage releasing, um, we'll be able to see uh, powerfully how that shows up in a marriage. Does anybody have a comment or a question about um, where we've been to date, um, anything that seems unclear from the first two Saturdays or from what we've covered this morning. I think we've got a couple of uh, mics back in the back. I don't know if they're, um, if they're on. Any, any comment or question? I've got one up here. Can, Debbie, could you get one of those microphones? She's going to bring one of, one of them up for you, Debbie. Oh, good. Thank you. Right here. I want to ask, we had talked about the cross and where there was an issue and what you think and what you feel and how to work through that. Mm -hmm. And what I'm wanting to know is if an individual has the opinion that they have no issues, that you're the issue, Or that, you know, they, you know, can't or won't care what you think or what you feel. How is it best appropriate to respond to that? Well, um, of course, many marriages get in a really bad place um, where there's a, um, a, there's a right-wrong mentality. There's a sense that <clears throat> one person feels that the other one is, has the issue while the other one feels equally convinced it's not their problem but the other one. Um, because we come from such different paradigms, that's not a very uncommon scenario. Um, what, I, what I encourage couples to do, if, if you're in a relationship 
where your partner um, has taken that position that you need to get fixed. It's not my issue. It's your issue. And I think it's still very valuable to ask the person to um, engage in, the, in a conversation. If, if they're willing, like, for instance, with the Take It to the Cross tool that we used last um, three, weeks ago, three weeks ago on the Saturday, we talked about conflict. If they're willing to listen to you talk through, um, through the issue, then go ahead and do that. Because what you may find is that planting seeds, even if they're not, they don't seem to be sinking in, they don't seem to be received, often God can still bring life to those seeds. Um, it wasn't uncommon early in our marriage that my wife would bring something up and I'd go, no, no, we can't do that because blah, 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 whatever. Um, she was wise enough to not take it back. She was wise enough to go, well, maybe not, but I think it's a good idea and just kind of leave it out there. Well, on a number of occasions, I don't know how many, but it was more than two, um, I would come back after a couple of weeks and say something like, oh, you know, I think we should, like, maybe we should buy that store, storage shed for out back or whatever, whatever the issue was that she brought up. And she's like, yeah, I think that's a great idea. And I'm like, yeah, I think we should do that. And she's like, you didn't think it was a good idea three weeks ago? And I'm like, really? And she goes, yeah, that's what I told you we should do. And I'm like, really? And I didn't even, truly, I didn't even have memory of the conversation. But after it kind of, you know, rolled around in the back of my brain, I thought, hey, this is a good idea. And, of course, she says it's just because I, all the ideas have to come from me. Um, she threatens to get me a T-shirt that says, just ask me, I know. Um, but, um, but the truth is, men um, tend to be more like a barge than a sailboat. You know, if, you're in a little, if you're in a little sailboat, you can, you can tack. You can you know, go back and forth with the wind. A barge turns slowly, you know. And so what, what women often get frustrated because they present an idea and the barge is headed in this way. The barge has already got, you know, got a, a, a direction. And, but if, but if, if she'll keep like, you know, little, like a little tugboat, you know, putting a little tension there, the barge turns. It's the greatest thing. The good thing about barges is that they're dependable, they're steady, you know. Um, it's frustrating that you can't turn them faster, but barges are built for carrying things. They're not built for, you know, having fun in the sun. Um, so anyway, a um, little side note there. But, um, but planting the seed, being willing to engage the conversation even in the face of resistance, being able to cast your care on God. Um, there's, there's a story in the... Uh, that Jesus tells of a widow who um, went to an unrighteous judge and she kept pleading her case. And the unrighteous judge finally relented not because he agreed with her. He relented because he was tired of hearing about it. Okay? You know, and Jesus encourages us to be that way with God. Isn't that interesting? That even with God, he wants us to be relentless in pursuing the good, pursuing what we believe should happen. And and it's very tough in a relationship not to want to push harder when you get resistance. I can tell you, push harder, you get more resistance. Or uh, our temptation is to either push harder or give up, like oh, forget it. Forget I even brought it up and to withdraw completely. But leaving it out there and just saying, well, you know, I think, it's, I think it'd be a good thing um, is, is really the way, I think, the way to win. Because ultimately, God does not 
hold you responsible for the result of your action as much as he, he, he holds you responsible for the action itself. Is it based on righteousness? Is it based on love? And if it is, love never fails. God will always um, give you uh, the reward for the thing that you do out of love, even if it doesn't get the result that you, you wish. Um, anything else before we break? <laughs> May. Hi, Dr. Looney. Um, I have heard you mention uh, many times about the four development stage yes. of marriage. But while you're listening to the clients talking, how can you sort of, you're trying to listen and you really use your experience intuition to, 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 to see what they're talking about, where they're at, where their conflicts are. How can you, at that time, thinking about those four stages and skillfully using them? Um, well, wh one thing that you'll notice is even if, um, e if, you s if you're seeing a couple together, their posture with one another will often help you see where they're stuck. Um, and the way that they re relate to one another when the other person is talking. If, if, if they're sitting at opposite ends of the couch or as far apart in the room as they can, you may begin to suspect they have an issue with bonding, right? Um, if one of them is talking and the other one is just sitting there completely immune, completely unreactive, then there's probably an issue with bonding. On the other hand, if one of them starts to talk and the other one's like, ah, no way, I and they start talking over each other, they start you know, interrupting each other, they start escalating, then they probably have an issue where they need some releasing. They need to have some emotional separateness. Um, if they're in a power struggle and they, um, they really they kind of uh, are vying for power in the relationship, then they're bumping up against that need for yielding or learning how to submit to one another, learning how to be able to um, defer to one another. And that's where probably where their, their growth point is going to be. Um, However, if they're, if, if they're able to defer to one another, but they're feeling a sense of, of uh, staleness in the marriage, if they're feeling a sense of being on opposite paths or whatever, then their, their main goal may be, may be to get them on that path of pursuit where they see their marriage as something that's not just for their own needs, but something that God has designed to make a difference in the world. And you help them to restore their vision, especially if it's a time when the kids are launching um, it's often a very, uh, very powerful moment in the life of a marriage for a couple to take stock of where they've been, their gifts, their strengths, their weaknesses, and where God would have them serve now. Unfortunately, our culture um, doesn't do a good, good, good job of helping people find that new direction. And so many marriages actually fall apart once the kids leave. Many marriages lose their sense of purpose and direction at a time when, when tragically, they're at the their, their prime time to share their wisdom, to share their strength. As a couple, to make a big difference in the world, they, they fall apart because they don't know how to get on the same, same track with each other. Um, I think as we go through the, the, the rest of the, the thing, uh, you'll see that better. Um, is Carrie here yet? Anybody know? I'll tell you what, why don't we go just a little bit more into releasing because... Um, and then we'll take, are y'all good for a few more minutes before we take the break?
Okay, cool. Because I think it'll help you as you listen to Carrie to think about um, how this model of emotionally focused therapy anchors in both bonding and releasing. We said in releasing, it's, it's uh, reflective of that stage in development where a child learns about limits, learns about boundaries, learns to say no. And while in the romance stage of a relationship, it's all about whatever you say, honey, whatever you want, dear. Um, suddenly, in the, in the releasing stage or the separation stage, we come up against things where, where, our, where that reveal our wills are at cross purposes, that what I want and what my partners want wants are different. And the words we said we hear a lot with from toddlers are no and mine. And while my body belongs to my partner in marriage, it's also mine. While my emotions are very vulnerable to my partner in marriage, I have to learn to claim them as my own. Um, where my needs are very vulnerable to my partner, I have to claim responsibility for them. And so separation or releasing is hugely important in the life of a child and the life of a marriage. In order for a child to mature successfully, she must become emotionally separate from her parents. It is essential for a child to, to be able to have um, a, a, a period of time where he or she realizes that what I want and what my parents want are different, but that I can stay in the relationship in the face of that. For a marriage to mature, they have to learn to safely release negative emotions. And if there is no emotional gate, then when, a, when one partner begins to feel their negative feelings, they feel frustration, they feel fear, they feel anxiety, they feel um, anger, if there is no emotional gate, then that negative feeling coming from one partner can flood the other partner and shut them down. And you'll see many couples who really one partner who is the, the, the partner who is, who is less of a feeling person gets flooded or overwhelmed by the partner who feels their feelings in a big way. And the partner who feels their feelings in a big way needs to be able to share them with their partner, but when they try to do so, the partner gets overwhelmed and shuts down, uh, backs away, um, may even leave the room because it's just it's too overwhelming because they don't have that emotional gate to help them stay in a, uh, a safe or calm, positive place in the face of their partner's negativity. So um, in, uh, in the, the Ecclesiastes passage, um, we said that if two lie down together, they're warmer. That's all about bonding. It also says if one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. If, uh, if a husband and wife have no emotional separa separation, if they are joined at the hip or, you know, they're completely connected, then when one falls in the ditch emotionally, where's the other one going to be? In the ditch. And you see so many couples who love the bond that they have, the connection that they have in marriage, the emotional sense of, of, of connection so much that they don't know how to let go. And without that, whenever negative feelings arise, they're in trouble um, because they don't know how to take turns um, being down. They don't know how to take turns being in the ditch. Uh, when one partner is down, like on a seesaw, the other partner needs to be up. Because if, if both are down, then the seesaw is broke and somebody probably got hurt, right? You've got you to learn how to, how to stay calm in the face of your partner's negativity. You have to be able to release or let go if you're going to authorize your partner to be able to go into that dark place. And as a, a counselor, if you can't keep yourself calm, 
in the face of someone's despair, in the face of their questions about God's goodness, in the face of their um, anger about losing a child or their, their sadness about um, uh, the death of a parent, their uh, absolute uh, feeling of devastation by uh, going through an affair. If you can't keep yourself calm in the face of that, they're not going to be able to release those feelings. Um, and if we can't release the negative, we can't get back to the positive. It's like the, um, the, the breath that you take into your lungs. This is supposed to be lungs. Um, as you, you know, you can't keep breathing in fresh air without also breathing out. If you don't make a, an opportunity for release, then you can't bring it back in. We'll just do a little quick little um, exercise just to demonstrate this. Everybody take a deep, deep breath. Deep as you can. Okay, let it out. Okay, now I want you to um, breathe all the air out of your lungs and breathe out as much as you can until there's nothing left, okay? And don't breathe in until I give you a thumbs up, okay? Start now. Breathe out, breathe out, breathe out. Push it out, push it out. Blow, blow, blow. Come on, a little bit more, a little bit more. Try, try, come on. Okay, breathe in. Okay, which breath was deeper, the one that you took first when I told you to breathe deeply or the second when you just took? Usually the second. I didn't tell you to breathe deep. Why was it deep? Because emptying fosters filling. Um, physiologically, if you breathe it all out, your body is going to instinctively breathe it back in. And in a marriage, if you are able to safely release those negative feelings, then you can reconnect with the positive. And, and Dr. Butler is going to talk to you about this emotionally focused therapy that really helps to demonstrate how this works um, as you work with a couple in, in a counseling session. Um, so, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. If we want to have the comfort of connection and relationship, we have to grieve the loss of our ideal relationship in order to embrace the real relationship that we have. It's not everything we thought it would be, but it is something. And Jesus says that those who have will be given more, but those who have not, even what little they have, will be taken away. If we get so focused on the negative that we can't reconnect with the positive, we're really done for. Um, so mourning helps us to grieve the loss of the ideal so that we can engage with the real. When we release our grief about the loss of the ideal in our marriage, we can stop focusing on what is missing and reclaim the value of what is present. Further, clearing away the negative feelings is often like skimming the dross off of molten metal that uncovers the pure gold of love and affection beneath. Um, there's a real positive value in being able to express negative feelings. Um, being willing to have a little spark uh, in your communication also keeps the spark in the bedroom. Couples who are able to express the full range of negative feelings in the relationship are couples who are more likely to maintain that romantic spark, the spark of sexual passion in the relationship. Okay, we're going to stop here um, and um, take a little break, and then Dr. Butler is going to come up and talk about emotionally focused therapy. Um, and so um, let's just pray, and uh, we'll take a 10-minute break, and Dr. Butler will, will begin. God, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your great plan to bless us with your love, to bless us with your life, to make us like your son Jesus. And God, we thank you that you use so many things 
um, to call us into life with you. Lord, thank you for the way you designed marriage to, um, to, to meet our needs for love, but also to meet our need for transformation. And we love you. We thank you. Bless us in this break uh, to be refreshed and bless Dr. Butler as she comes up to enlighten us and to share with us um, the truth that you've delivered to her. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, um, take a quick break, 10 minutes, come back and we'll get going again.
Day by 